Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear Younger Saketh, The world is so much more than what you know. Everything you've ever experienced, every place you've ever been to, every person you've ever met, every idea you've ever read, these are all a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what this world has to offer. Never be complacent in thinking you've had enough experiences to understand this complex, crazy world. Always stay curious, embrace discomfort, and don't be afraid to dive into the deep end. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing my friend Saketh Halathor. I met him at business school when me and Nate went on this awesome hiking trip. We were hiking in the Dolomites with a bunch of strangers who ended up being some of our best friends. Saketh is amazing. He has such great insight and I feel like he has a lot of words of wisdom. He was born in India and at age two, his family moved to Boston. He was born with clubbed foot and he talks about his experience with that and He went to Columbia University and then he ended up working for a nonprofit organization called Miracle Feet who help children who are born with clubbed foot. He shares a lot about clubbed foot. I didn't know very much information about it and I feel like it was really interesting. While he was working for that nonprofit, he lived in Mumbai where he actually met the Dalai Lama and he shares his experience about that. Saka's life experience has been full of purpose and meaning, and I just love all the insights that he has and the wisdom that he's gained over the years. I hope you enjoy his story. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Saka. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Saka, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your hobbies, and, and what you were like as a child. Give us a little background on you. I grew up in the Boston area. First, we were living in Cambridge, so more of a, a city environment. But then when I was in fourth grade, we moved out to the suburbs uh, in central Massachusetts. And I think as a child, I was always sort of someone that got along well with other people. Sort of growing up in a culture that was very different than my parents' culture, meant that a lot of things I would encounter, I would sort of be the first one in my family to ever encounter them. So I think with that came a degree of adaptability and a a need to sort of fit myself into whatever situation I found myself. And I think from an early age, that always sort of made me someone that was comfortable navigating in many different settings, navigating with different people, and overall just being someone that that could, could take whatever life threw at me. Well, I can agree to that. I feel like you're really easy to talk to. I've never met anyone that you couldn't relate to. That's part of the reason I was thinking that you'd be fun for the podcast because I feel like you're so easy to talk to and you're easy to relate to. And I feel like you always have interesting stories to tell. Tell us a little bit about your hobbies. So, I mean, in terms of hobbies, I've always been someone that really likes the outdoors. I credit this a lot to my one of my my uncles who lived not too far from us when we were growing up. 
he would always take me out for hikes and going camping and being in the mountains. And I think from a really young age, that sort of instilled in me that, that love of the, the outdoors. And hiking is something I've kept up uh, since then, and I continue to this day. And in fact, Liz, that's kind of where we met uh, on a big old hiking trip. So yeah, I'd say that's sort of the main hobby that I, I like to pursue. Yeah, that was quite the the hiking trip in the Dolomites, such beautiful views. And it was so interesting because I feel like we had such a spectrum of people who were like, you know, we had Victor who was like super fit. He was like running up the mountain. And then we also had people who had never hiked in their lives. So, you know, we had like quite the spectrum of people on the trip. But I, I feel like that was one of the most valuable things that we had from business school was meeting all the people on on that trip and making such wonderful friendships and meeting people who are from all over and have such amazing experiences and things to to teach us. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, in fact, I've been thinking about it, uh, you know, what you said about everyone approaching hiking from a different experience level. One of the things that I've been watching with interest during sort of the quarantine period that we've had over the last few months is how much people that would never really think of going to a national park or going hiking or going camping uh, all of a sudden, because that's kind of the only thing to do. I see so many people pursuing that. And I think that's, that's a really great thing, you know, cause I, I personally believe that there's a lot to get out of nature and being out there. And, and it's really cool to see so many more people embracing that now. And just, you know, despite not really being able to do anything else. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like it's good for your soul to get outside and, have some fresh air and time to think and see the beautiful world that we live in, right? Definitely. I mean, when you're up on top of a mountain and you're just sort of like looking out on a, a really nice day, yeah, there is something sort of awe-inspiring about it. Um, yeah, good for your soul. I think you, you put it perfectly. So you said you grew up in Boston. Tell us a little bit about your family and your experience growing up in Boston. So my family... Uh, is from India. In fact, I was actually born in India, but uh, my parents came over when I was about two years old. So I, I don't really remember that part of my life. The first memories I have are living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so for the first eight years of my life, I was an only child. Uh, and then my sister was born. And that was around the time that we moved out to the suburbs. And I think that living in, in Cambridge and then living in the suburbs were two completely different experiences. In Cambridge, I'd say I was a lot more sheltered. You know, we lived in a big apartment building, so everything that we really needed to do, like our, my friends, we had a little playground in the building, everything could sort of be done in that one little area. Whereas when we went out to the suburbs, all of a sudden I had access to, you know, being able to just ride my bike around, uh, being able to go play with the other kids in the woods. And so it was, it was a really stark difference. You know, ultimately I think I got a lot out of both. Think of my childhood, and I grew up in the suburbs, but we had like a little place that we would go to. We called it the hollow, and I felt like we were, um, it was basically just like a ditch with trees and a river that, a small little stream that went through, but we felt like we had made it to the woods, and we, and we would just go out, and there was no parental supervision. We just came back when it was dark, and I think of Hayden's life, and living in bigger cities, and I mean, most everything he's done, he's had an adult supervising. Like, that's such a different type experience than living in a place where you can kind of just roam free as a kid. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's something I wonder about. And I'd even be curious about your own experience. Like, do you feel like you're comfortable letting the kids be unsupervised in the same way that you were when you were young? Or or is it sort of a different world now? You know, I think it would probably depend where we were living. I feel like where we live in Dallas and where we lived in Evanston and we lived in London with Hayden too. I don't feel like any of those places I felt comfortable to let him run unsupervised. And I also, I think as he got a little bit older, if we were in a neighborhood that I felt that way, I think I would let him do it. I mean, maybe for like shorter periods of time, I don't think I would ever just let him go all day long and not really know what he was doing. <laughs> I feel like that's that's completely rational. What's what's more crazy is what they used to let us do back in the, back in the day. I know, right? I do think <laughs> that life has changed a little bit more for for people. Just I think our society's changed. I think the communities have changed. But I'm sure there are pockets of places that there's a little more security and people feel free to let their kids do that. Yeah. I know that when you were born, you had a clubbed foot. Can you tell us about that experience and what that was like for your parents? I don't know if you remember much of it. I guess just for people that don't know what club foot is, it's actually one of the most common birth defects all across the world. So it's not localized to one particular area or one particular region. But basically, one out of every 800 people that are born will be born with a club foot, which basically means that either one of your feet or both of your feet are twisted at the angle. So they sort of face inwards instead of facing forwards. When I was born with club foot in India, I very quickly got treatment. So I was taken to a hospital where there was a surgeon that knew how to operate on the club foot, and, and they sort of fixed it. And so the only thing I really remembered about having it as a kid was having to go to the what my parents called the foot doctor every couple of months. Uh, and that doctor would just sort of like take a look and, and, you know, stretch me out a little bit and just make sure everything was was fine. Uh, but I never really realized sort of what clubfoot even was. And it really wasn't something I thought about until much, much later in life. And it sounded like because you had available to them the right medical assistance, it wasn't super stressful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way my parents described to me is that, I mean, they weren't really worried at all. It was kind of one of these things where I was born. The doctor said, all right, he has club foot. We have to go treat it. And they they sort of said, okay. And and within a day I was treated and they put me in a a cast for a little bit. Uh, But beyond that, nothing really worrying about that for them. So do most kids get it treated quickly and that it's not the long-term thing? I remember I had a friend, and I don't know if it was clubbed foot, but her baby was born with his feet turned in. They had to do lots of surgeries, and he basically, like, while he was little, it almost looked like he had a snowboard attached to his feet. Right. So to answer your first question, in the U.S. and in Europe and in most of sort of the, the high-income countries, uh, clubfoot is a pretty routine thing to treat uh, in this day and age. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some people that do have a harder time. Uh, there are definitely some kids that, uh, you know, either have some residual issues or, or may have some 
uh, growth issues coming out of it. But but for the most part, if you're born with clubfoot today in a high income country, you're going to be fine. The problem is that in most low and middle income countries in the world, uh, there really isn't good knowledge of how to treat clubfoot uh, or people that have the abilities to to actually do the treatment. And so, in a place like India, you know, the, to the best approximation, only about 15 to 20 percent of kids that are born with clubfoot will actually get treated, and the other 80 to 85 percent uh, just won't. And what that means is that as they get older, their feet solidify in that bent position uh, to the point where they grow up and it's very, very difficult to walk. Uh, I mean, you can basically, you can hobble around a little bit, but for all intents and purposes, if you don't get treated, you're you're going to be disabled when you're an adult. And, and that was one of the things that I, I didn't actually realize until I graduated from college uh, and started looking more into you know, what it actually meant to be born with clubfoot and how people with clubfoot were getting treated in, in different places around the world. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and also something that you look at and of having that privilege of being in a place where you have access to the right medical care, that it's just really not an issue, but that for somebody else, it affects their whole life and them being able to get certain jobs and be able to care for themselves and, and so many ramifications for that. When I graduated from college, I, I was actually in India. And that was when I sort of started thinking a little bit more about Clubfoot and started doing all this research. And this was really a, a sort of pivotal point in my life because I think it was the first time I ever really grappled with the idea that I had been more privileged than others because of uh, the fact that my parents were able to get that treatment. And, and, you know, now I sort of think about it and it's sort of obvious, but at the time, I, I think it was really profound just because I had never really in my life had to think about my club foot up until that point. And so that sort of moment, I, I think, led to a, a lot of different realizations and a real motivation and desire to want to get involved uh, in Clubfoot and, and see how I could actually do something if I could do anything to to help people that didn't have those those treatment resources that I did. Awesome. Well, we'll ha- we'll talk about how you got into that a little later. I want to talk a little bit about you kind of growing up and your family's experience. You were born in India, and so your parents were obviously immigrants. What was that experience like for you, having your parents kind of adapting to a new culture? Earlier when I talked about sort of the big difference between living in Cambridge and then living in the suburbs, I think that also applied to to sort of culturally how I fit in. When we were in Cambridge, the school that I went to, the, the elementary school, it, it was an extremely diverse school. I honestly never even really thought about being a different race or being Indian compared to everyone else because everyone was from such a different background. I think it was once I moved to the suburbs that that started to shift a little bit because this, this suburb that I moved to, at the time at least, it, it was mostly white. You know, everyone at school, not everyone, but but most people at school are white. And I think, you know, just the difference between this sort of suburban culture and urban culture there was just a lot less diversity that people had been exposed to. And, and you know, this was back in the, the early 2000s. 
I think the the next place where it really started to occur to me more was after 9-11, because I think, you know, I was in fifth grade at the time. That, that was the first time that I started to realize that I was sort of different than everybody else. And, and, you know, I never had any, you know, big issues or anything. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that people like bullied me or anything after 9-11, but, I, but I think it was sort of just like a, a little bit of an awakening because of what was going on in the world and what was happening in the country and the tensions that were starting to build up in that area. Yeah. And I'm sure in fifth grade, you're, you're old enough that you know that stuff's going on, but it's all like pretty complex to understand everything that's going on in, at such a young age. Yeah, I think if my fifth grade me had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but I think for me, that was probably one of the first times I felt like our world was kind of shaken. You know, I felt like before, America is no one can hurt us. We're the best country in the world and nobody can do anything to harm us type type thing that was kind of just this patriotism of we're safe here. Yeah, definitely. If you could go back, talk to yourself when you had transitioned to the suburb, a little different type situation. If you could go back in time and and talk to yourself when you kind of moved to this new school and give yourself advice, what do you think you'd say? I think what I would say is that people are a lot more open than they may at first appear to be. You know, I think at that time, you know, after I had moved to the suburbs, I had a stretch of a few years where I think I became much more of a sort of a shyer kid. And I think part of that probably had to do with this idea that, you know, oh, like, I'm very different than these people. And then these people all sort of have a thing that they they know and they have going on. And and so, you know, I just need to find out, sort of find like sort of my own people that, that may also be sort of from different backgrounds or maybe from other countries. But in retrospect, I actually don't think that was really necessary. I think that was maybe a little bit self-imposed. I think one of the things that I've learned throughout my life is when you are in a new setting where people aren't used to just to someone like you, they are going to be a little bit more hesitant to engage with you. And they are going to appear to be maybe a little bit more closed off. But I think that it doesn't actually take much to get beyond that. And I think that by being open and, and by giving people the benefit of a doubt and really putting yourself out there, I, I don't actually think those differences are as big as they may appear. So back in fifth grade when I, or back in fourth grade when I first moved to the suburbs, you know, obviously I was a kid and I don't think I could, would have followed this advice if I had heard it, but I, I think uh, engaging more with other people in, instead of sort of turning a little bit more inward, I think would have been much better. I like how you said giving people the benefit of the doubt because I think regardless of who you are, we've all received comments or looks or different things that we feel like are judgmental. And sometimes they might be and sometimes it's how we perceive it. But I think giving people the benefit of the doubt and even giving people who don't understand the benefit of the doubt or maybe have been taught differently giving them the opportunity to learn that just because the color of your skin is different than them it doesn't mean that you're that you can't relate to them or 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 something like that but there might be some kids that were in your class that 
hadn't had much exposure, but then by knowing you and learning from you, then they, their perceptions are changed because of your openness to share and be their friends. For sure. You know, I think it's hard to understand how little someone else may actually know about your culture. And, you know, one thing that, one story that comes to mind, I remember in seventh grade, I had gone to India with my family for a few weeks to go to one of my uncle's weddings. And so my parents had kind of negotiated with my teachers and they said, you know, he's going to miss a lot of class, but how about when he comes back, he'll like make a a PowerPoint presentation about his trip and he'll present to the class and they can sort of learn about India. And my teacher thought that was a great idea. So I came back and I remember I made this PowerPoint of like the 10 best things to do in India. And I literally just made it all up. I was like, the Taj Mahal. I had never been to the Taj Mahal. I was like, the Taj Mahal, it's great. And I had a little PowerPoint slide with a picture of the Taj Mahal, a couple of bullets that I found. And I remember my teacher was so blown away by this that she pulled me out of class for the next two days and then basically had me rotate around every single uh, like class section in the entire school to give the same presentation like over and over and over again. Uh, and at the time I was like, all right, this is great. I just get to like talk and not have to go to class for two days. But thinking back about that now, it's so clear that even my teacher probably never had any real experience thinking about India or knowing what India was. And, you know, at the time we didn't have, you know, the ability to just go on your computer or go on YouTube and and see people making videos from across the world. And so for her, like having this kid that had gone to India and now came back and supposedly knew all these things was huge, you know? And so I think it's exactly what you said. It's people often just don't know things. And that's not just the kids, it's also the adults. Because, you know, if you grow up in a place and you've never been exposed to a certain type of person, how would you know? You know, it's, it's, it's impossible. So I don't know if I told you this, but when I graduated high school, me and a group of girls, our senior trip was to India and we did like a humanitarian trip there. I had been out of the country one other time, but it was Jamaica. So (laughs) this was my first experience going to a third world country and we were going to leprosy colonies and we were not really doing touristy type India thing. And it was so eye-opening to me. And I remember coming back and I want to tell everybody all about this experience because it was so different from what I had ever experienced. And I feel like that trip really changed my life and a lot of my perspective of the world and societies and how things work and the caste system and how, you know, all these things that I had, I just had no idea about. And it was really good experience for me to have that. Yeah, I'm sure that would have been super eye-opening to be able to go do that. Because you were raised in America, that's so much of your culture, but because your parents are from India and you're from there, what does your culture mean to you? Yeah, so I think um, I think this is something that has really evolved over time for me. When I was growing up, my culture was sort of something that was at home and then when i was sort of at school or or out in the in the sort of outside world i was just sort of completely different i was like purely american or or what i sort of perceived to be american uh i think over time that has shifted a lot and i think really 
when I moved to Mumbai uh, in 2016, that was really the time when I investigated a lot more sort of what my culture meant to me and, and what it sort of meant to be an Indian person of Indian heritage that grew up in America. I think one of the things that, one of the biggest things I realized was that, you know, when I was growing up, me and, and sort of kids that I was friends with that sort of were, you know, had similar circumstances, like their parents immigrated from India, but they had grown up American. We always sort of thought of ourselves as Indian. But what I realized when I went to India is that there is a huge difference between people that grew up in India and people that grew up in America, but whose parents had immigrated uh, from India. And I really like cannot overstate how big that difference is. And so I think that leads, and I think a lot of sort of first and second generation immigrants will sort of have this experience where you sort of feel like you're in between two different cultures. Like you're not quite American, but you're also not quite Indian and you're not quite sort of this culture that your parents had. And so I think over time that's led to sort of a unique standalone culture of sort of Indian hyphen American that's emerged. And, you know, it's a smaller group of people that experience that, but I, I do think there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, people that grew up like that across America, regardless of what city or what state. And I think there's a lot of things that sort of, that brings people together in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And kind of having this a little bit in between place that you might not necessarily feel like you have like an exact place but I feel like that's also the beauty of America is that we have so many different cultures and so many different people from all over coming together and being able to to work together, hopefully, right? Sometimes we're not, right now, I don't know if we're doing our best job at working together, but that's the, that's the idea, right? Yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about your college experience, you where you went to undergrad and how you got um, into consulting after? Yeah, so so I went to Columbia in New York City. That was sort of my dream school from the time I started thinking about going to colleges. And it was my dream school for two reasons. One, just New York City. Um, I think as someone that grew up outside New York City, uh, there's a certain allure of it and a certain sort of larger than life personality that that city has that I was just obsessed with uh, from from the time I was a kid. And so the idea that I could go and spend four years there for college was it was sort of a dream. And the second reason I was really into Columbia was because, uh, you know, at Columbia as an undergrad, no matter what you're studying. So, you know, I was studying biology. I was actually like a pure science major. No matter if you're studying biology or math or art history or English, no matter what, everyone had to take a series of classes about the humanities uh, that were sort of universal to everyone that went through the school. And, and this sort of curriculum had been taught at Columbia for you know over 100 years. And, and I think that was something that really appealed to me because I felt like as I sort of got to the end of high school and, and I sort of found myself being very good at sort of math and science and, and sort of these more technical things, I started getting really interested in the humanities. And I really wanted the opportunity to 
study philosophy, study Western literature, study art history. All these things are sort of considered, you know, the liberal arts. And I felt like at Columbia, there was a culture there that prioritized the liberal arts no matter what you were studying as your actual major. And so, so that was sort of why I went. And, you know, I had a, I had an interesting experience at Columbia. I think it was a, a really profound time in my life. You know, college is a time where you, you learn a lot of things and you really grow up as a person. And I think doing college in New York really accelerated that because I think when you're in New York, you, you grow up fast. And I, I made some of my best friends to this day at Columbia. And I think Columbia really opened up my world and opened up my mind to ideas that I had never really thought about before. But having said that, I do feel that Columbia reflects New York. And I think a lot of the negative aspects of New York that that people often don't like about New York, I think, are imbued into Columbia. You know, things like the very fast-paced culture of that city, things like the sort of sink or swim attitude. I, I think those all find themselves a part of the Columbia culture as well. And I think that a lot of other schools have more of a slow-paced, supportive atmosphere, whereas Columbia was more of a, in my opinion, a more of a sink or swim place. So, you know, overall, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Um, but like anything, I think there were pluses and minuses. Yeah. So me and Nate, we lived there. He did investment banking. So we had two summers there. And I remember we did a trip. We we had lived in Africa for two months. And then we went to New York for two months. And I can't tell you the culture shock I went through when we went from <laughs> Africa, where everyone was like, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. What are you doing here? Kids would like rush to us on the street and hug us and just thought we were celebrities. And then I was like, literally, I could drop dead in the city and people would walk all over me. And I don't think anyone would know I was dead for like, <laughs> like I just really felt like no one, I don't know. It was just such a different feeling, but kind of like what you were saying earlier, that I think people are actually more open than they appear. I think New Yorkers kind of put up a wall. But if you break that barrier, you open a door to be able to have a conversation. They are super awesome, wonderful people. But there there definitely is a very different culture there. And I remember we went on a trip with my family. We had just come from New York. And then we went on the Oregon coast. And my sisters were just waving at some random guy. And I was like, do you know him? I was kind of like, why are you waving at them? And they're like, what's wrong with you? But I felt like... <laughs> I don't know if you did this, but you're around so many people. You can't just kind of a different mentality when you're, you have thousands of people around you every day. And I always looked like a tourist, no matter what I did. And so you kind of had to act a certain way. So it was funny. Nate always said I had to have some detox after we'd be in New York to get my happy, nice, friendly side back. (laughs) Yeah, I could definitely see. I could definitely see why Nate would say you were you were a tourist. <laughs> After Columbia, then you worked. Who did you work for? All right. So I never actually finished answering your question about how I ended up in consulting, but it was sort of a winding road to get there because you know, like I said, I started off at Columbia studying biology, uh, and I actually finished with a biology degree. But I think somewhere around junior year. 
was when I realized that I really, really did not like biology, which was a little bit tragic because at that point it was a little too late to, to switch majors. Um, but I sort of figured, okay, if I have to finish this major, I may as well try to find an internship that may be something I would enjoy more. And so I found ZS Associates, which is a, a consulting firm that uh, at the time, they primarily did work in the pharmaceutical industry. And so I sort of went to one of their recruiting events and I was sort of like, hey, you know, I'm a biology major. I know you guys do a lot of stuff in pharma. Uh, do you think that, you know, my skills could be useful to you? And at the time they said, yeah, you know, we, we would love to have someone with more of like a biology knowledge. In hindsight, it actually made absolutely no difference, but it was enough to get my foot in the door. So <laughs> that was great. Um, so I ended up working for ZS for two years in New York right after I graduated. And then I transferred to the Boston office uh, and was there for another year before I left and then moved to India to to work for the Clubfoot nonprofit. I, one thing I think I've learned from Nate, though, with consulting, I think they just like smart people. And so if they can tell you're a smart biology major, great. If you're a smart economics major, great. If you're a smart business major, they're like, if you can do the job, we just want people who are capable of doing it, right? I, I think that's right. I, I, I sort of say in jest, but it was just like, you know, when I was doing that whole internship search, I was so unsavvy about the whole process because, you know, I think if you were sort of like an econ major or, you know, you were certain majors that fed more into the banking consulting world, uh, you kind of knew the process. It's sort of like how at Kellogg, you know, everyone knows the process, but I was super fresh, super bright eyed, had no idea what any of this stuff was, didn't even really know what, an interview was going to be. Uh, and I kind of just showed up being like, yeah, I'm a biology major. You guys do pharma. Sounds like a great match. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So why did you decide to quit your job and work for the nonprofit? With what was the, what's the nonprofit called with the club feet? The nonprofit is called Miracle Feet. Okay. Uh, I had first learned of Miracle Feet in 2013 after I graduated from college. And I sort of mentioned already that I graduated college and then I was in India. And that was when I started thinking a lot more about uh, what it meant to be born with club foot and started doing a little bit more research on uh, how many people don't have access to club foot treatment. So that moment really inspired me. And so I started looking around the internet and I found a couple of nonprofits that focused on club foot. And the one that really stood out to me was Miracle Feet. And the real reason it stood out to me is, is when I was looking at the website and I was seeing the people that were running it and the people on the board of directors, they just seemed super, super legit. Uh, it was a lot of people that had worked in business before, uh, people that had worked in consulting, in banking, and had sort of come over to this nonprofit world and were really devoted to Clubfoot because almost all of them had a personal connection to Clubfoot. Either they were born with it or they had a son or daughter born with it. Uh, and so I just sent an email over to the executive director, and, and that's how we first got in touch and sort of uh, when met. And so over the next three years, when I was working for ZS, I kept in touch with her. I would do little fundraising events here and there, you know, raising a couple hundred dollars or a couple, um, and, you know, put out a couple of stories or a couple, uh, share a couple of news articles with my friends. And it, it all sort of come, came to a head in 2016, where I had dinner with uh, that executive director once when we were both in New York. Uh, and we were sort of just talking about 
what I was doing, my job, where I was thinking of going from there. And sort of as a throwaway, she kind of mentioned, you know, if you ever get bored at your job, you could always come work for me. And, you know, I'm sure we could use a lot of help over in India with what we're doing. And at the time, that seemed like a crazy idea because I had just transferred from the ZS New York office to the ZS Boston office. I've never lived outside of Boston or New York. And so the idea of going and living in India was was just ridiculous. For some reason, it kind of just got stuck in my head. And uh, as the weeks went on and then as the months went on, and it's sort of I, I got a little bit more restless at work and sort of wanted a, an adventure to go on. One day I just decided, you know, I should just go for it. And so I, I sent the executive director an email and, and sort of the rest is all history. So now, now that you're talking about living in India, I'm having like a flashback of you telling me a story of one of the places that you lived. And I'm trying to remember what there was like some crazy animal in your place. What was it? Now I can't yeah, remember. we had a, we had a pigeon problem. <laughs> so these, these pigeons were very, very smart and they would get into our kitchen despite us blocking, blocking every single way for them to get in. <laughs> they would still manage to get in. So, you know, if you're ever having trouble waking up in the morning, one way to get woken up real fast is going into the kitchen to get some water and all of a sudden having a pigeon flying around your head. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so well, tell us what it was like working for Miracle Feet. If you have any stories about some of the kids that the organization was able to help and, you know, what that experience was like. Yeah, so working for Miracle Feet, in one word to describe it, it would just be, it was crazy. I mean, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was 24 years old, thought I could go over to a country where I, or, you know, a city where I didn't even speak the language because my family's from South India where they speak a very different language to what they speak in Mumbai. And so I, I sort of thought that I could just sort of walk in here and uh, and start doing some some amazing things. But reality was much, much harder. You know, I, I found the adjustment very, very difficult. And I think the first six months of my time there was really just about adjusting how to live in, in the city. Because a lot of the things you take for granted in the U.S. all of a sudden become major, major headaches. Uh, and so that was a big part of the beginning. But I think once I sort of got the hang of it, it got really, really fun uh, because I was working on something that I really cared about. And I would sort of uh, pop in and out of our clinics where we would be treating these people. I, I would sort of see myself in the people that we were treating in, their, in the clinics. I think in the beginning, at least, that was very humbling, but also very inspiring. You would see people that had traveled hours and hours and hours to come to the to a particular clinic to get treatment for their kid. And a lot of these people, you know, if you're in India and you're sort of from the, the upper class, it's no problem to go to a private hospital and get treated. But we were dealing with the government hospitals and the public hospitals, a lot of which I think would shock people in the U.S. even just to see what they look like. And so people that came to places like those really had no other option. And they came because they wanted better for their kids. And so you know, it was really touching every day to to sort of think about that and be in that. I know that while you were working for Miracle Feet, you were able to meet the Dalai Lama. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, so that that was one of these crazy things that I got to do in New Delhi. The Dalai Lama is an absolutely incredible person. 
And I think his story is is told in that, that Brad Pitt movie where I'm forgetting the name of it. I never really knew much about him, but, but sort of just learning about the struggles that he went through originally in Tibet and then having to flee the Chinese uh, to cross over into India and having to ask the Indian government for refugee status and sort of living his life since then, sort of just spreading his ideas. It's just a remarkable story. And he talked about so many things in the two days that I got to spend with him. And it all just centered around the idea of love and acceptance and uh, treating people with warm heartedness. And, you know, I had never really been much of a religious or spiritual person before then. But I think after that, I, it definitely sort of changed me in a, in a profound way about how I thought about these kinds of things and the importance that I realized I needed to give to thinking about some of these more spiritual questions. I like that. I like, you know, treating people with warm heartedness. And I feel like you're, you are very warm hearted. I feel like you're always very loving and kind and friendly and you're always thinking about other people and I'm sure your experience in Mumbai was interesting for you and kind of seeing how other people live has probably affected your personality in that way of being more caring and empathetic of other people. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I I, I try. I try my best. Um, Well, do you have anything else that you would want to share about your experience in Mumbai or working with a nonprofit? I think the only other thing kind of to tie back to what we were talking about before about culturally sort of the difference between growing up in America and then people that grew up in India, I I think this was one of those times where I really realized that because despite the fact that, that my parents had moved from India to America, I really found myself having very little in common with a lot of people that uh, I was having to work with and I was having to, to go to meetings with um, just as part of my job. And I think one of the big struggles, but also the things I'm most proud of about that whole chapter was the fact that I was able to flex myself and sort of embrace this this new way that I had to communicate with people and I had to deal with people. And I think that kind of goes back earlier to what we were saying, you know, when I first, you know, as a fourth grader, when I moved to the suburbs and I you know, sort of people had never really been exposed to somebody like me. I think it was the same thing when I went to India. I think a lot of these people didn't quite know what to make of me because I looked like I was the same as them. But once I started talking, they realized I was very different. And, you know, it's not just an accent. It's really my entire life experience and the way I was educated and the way I thought. And so I think, that, again, that sort of highlights that that difference between being Indian American and, and being Indian. Yeah. And I also was thinking while you were saying that that's why it's so important for us not to judge people based off of how they look or how you think that they might be, because if you do, then you could miss out on having an amazing friendship or learning something from somebody who might be different from you in some ways, but actually you see eye to eye on lots of other things. And, you know, I feel like that seems like just like a common thing that you know that we should all know and everything but I feel like 
with all of the stuff going on in our society right now and learning all about the all the Black Lives Matter and all these things, I feel like it really is so important to treat people with, with kindness and respect. I just, I just finished a book today. It's called Between the World and Me. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've, I've heard of the book. I, I have not read it. As I was listening to it today, I got emotional, you know, just thinking of the heartache that so many people have had to experience because of the color of their skin and how much, how there's so many people who have thrived off of pushing other people down. And I just hope that, you know, we as a society can kind of rise above that and that what we're teaching are the next generation that there can be more love and more compassion. And like you were saying, more warm heartedness towards other people so that people don't have to live in fear of not being, you know, of being hurt because of the color of their skin or, or whatever that might be. And, and so, and, you know, it's interesting for me growing up being a white woman and growing up in a predominantly white area, like I've never experienced that, but it's, I don't know. It's just so heartbreaking to me to hear of people's experiences of not feeling like they belong or that someone would judge them because of the color of their skin. And so I hope that, you know, talking about this and having people listen that will kind of open people's hearts and minds to just make sure that you're treating everybody like you would treat your own children or treat somebody who, how you would want um, someone to treat you. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, You know, I do think that sort of the, the black experience is, is very different than sort of the, the Indian American experience for, for a lot of different reasons. But, but I agree yeah. with you. I, I think, I think what you're describing is definitely the goal and what people should aspire to. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us what you're up to now? I know you, you just graduated from Kellogg. Congratulations. Thank you. And tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and what your plans are for the future. Yeah. Uh, so. Since graduating from Kellogg a couple months ago, I've been doing my my whole quarantine thing uh, at home at my parents' place in in Massachusetts, which has been a really nice time. I've been getting out a lot, doing a lot of hiking up in New Hampshire and spending time with the family. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be moving to Boston uh, to settle into to my apartment and then starting work uh, at Bain in consulting in December. So uh, I'm sort of going full circle. I started out in consulting and now I'm going back to consulting. And I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of great things ahead of you. And my last question for you is if you could go back in time to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? Yeah. So I think advice is a funny thing because I don't think there's really anything that I could go back and tell myself that the younger version of me would actually take seriously. Uh, Because I think a a lot of the things that immediately come to mind would sort of be like regrets maybe that I have or, or certain crossroads. Like for example, to go back and tell that my, uh, 18 year old self, like, Hey, like maybe don't major in biology, maybe like look at some other things before it's too late. 
you, you know, I don't think I would have really listened to that because I think at the end of the day, you need to experience a lot of these things yourself to sort of ultimately get where you want to go. Now, having said that, I think what I would tell my younger self is sort of how I started off uh, our conversation today, which is just that the world is so much bigger than what I thought it was. And I think, you know, I think when you're growing up, no matter who you are, the only thing you know about the world is what you're exposed to. And so for me, you know, I didn't have anyone in my family really that did anything businessy or, or sort of related to the business world. I had a lot of scientists, a lot of doctors, a lot of academics. And so that was my world. And I, you know, if I could really go back and tell my younger self something, it would be to tell him all of these other things that happen in the world and all of these other people and all of these other ideas that I think had I had all of that, my mind would be able to contemplate a lot more paths uh, that in sort of the real world, I, w I was never even privy existed. So that may be a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I think that's that's really what I would do if I had a chance to talk to my younger self. No, I don't think it's a cop-out. I think, I think it's good for all of us to think about that. And I like what you said about the only thing you know about the world is what you are exposed to. And so I think exposing yourself to more things and understanding other people's paths and other people's journeys and experiences that are not our own, I think help us to be a more well-rounded individual and open our eyes to being able to make better decisions because we have more information. Yeah, totally agree. Well, thanks so much, Socket, for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our chat. Absolutely. Thanks, Liz. This is Liz Gardner. Thank you for listening to Letters to My Younger Self.